Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. On today's episode, you'll be hearing another interview that Sam did, this time with Albert Glinsky, who wrote the book Switched On, Bob Moog, and the Synthesizer Revolution. And that's right, it's Bob Moog, not Bob Moog. Uh, but the interview does contain uh, many more fascinating uh, stories than just how to pronounce Bob Moog's name correctly. <laughs> um, actually, I think in many ways the life story of Bob Moog and him creating uh, the synthesizer, the Moog synthesizer, uh, is kind of a classic semi-success capital, American capitalist story. Uh, you have the sort of idiosync- the idiosyncratic like genius, you know, tinkering away um, with his obsessions in a basement, um, creating a product that ends up like revolutionizing an entire industry. And then you have you know, all the different issues. Of course, he's unable to like really run a business. He gets bought out. There's uh, Japanese corporate spies that come through and kind of like build upon the technology to make it better, to like undercut like their competitors, et cetera, et cetera. I'll let Glinsky explain it, who gave uh, a very extensive interview with us and was very generous with his time. It's a great interview and we're very, we were very happy to have him on. As usual, please rate and review us, follow us on all the socials, enjoy the interview. Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, um, and we are very excited to have with us today um, Albert Glinsky, who's a composer as well as the author of Theremin, Ether, Music, and Espionage, and more pertinently for the sake of this conversation, Switched On, Bob Moog and the Synthesizer Revolution, which tells the story of a cantankerous iconoclastic focused uh not businessman who really changed the way everything sounded forever more or less (laughs) um so we're delighted uh to 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 have you on um albert welcome to the show um so to start with I think maybe just to give anyone who's not quite aware of um, Moog's work, uh, just like at a at a at a high level glance, what what did Bob Moog do to? to, to it's kind of funny to say to music, but what did he do to music? 
This is the elevator pitch, I guess. Well, Bob Moog's changes to music really revolve around the fact that he popularized his invention, the Moog synthesizer, popularized the idea of electronically generated music to a broad public and, and to the popular music world and essentially to anyone making music. Because before that, you had devices that were referred to as synthesizers and people did all sorts of crazy tricks to try to create music electronically by splicing tape and, you know, putting uh, microphones in their bathtub for echo chambers. And it goes on and on. There's a whole, you know, history of, uh, you know, about uh, 75 years <laughs> prior to Bob Moog of people making electronic music. But he was the one that really made it efficient. I guess you could almost say as an analogy, kind of the <laughs> Henry Ford of electronic music, somebody who took a technology and made it possible for the average musician, the average person to do very sophisticated uh, musical electronics. And and in that, so I mean, I think that when people think about um, electronic music, they're often kind of focused on you know, often dance music or certain kinds of like obviously, uh, you know, ambient music. But I think it's like it is in almost impossible to overstate the extent to which almost everything has at least a little bit of synthesized music in it. However, huge portions and and the extent to which synthesized music is just it's, it's almost unthinkable. To imagine a world where it wasn't possible to generate tones um, efficiently and add them to recordings. Right, right. Oh, definitely. Uh, but so much has changed, of course, in recent years because we take so many things for granted now, especially the digital revolution and digital audio workstations and so many ways of making music away from any kind of instrument or even any kind of analog machine simply through software. But, you know, if we sort of rewind back to the early days, none of that was possible. So you had to have these giant contraptions to create any kind of electronic music, any semblance of electronics that would forge sound into anything that sounded like music. So that's really where we get Bob Moog. He came out of a completely different era. But uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Today, everything is uh, so synthesized, <laughs> so completely. It's true. And it's hard to tell, even when listening to film scores, you know, of course, as you know, whether you have to listen very carefully. Are those synthesized strings or is that a real string orchestra? You know, that kind of thing, because it's just made its way into every form of music i'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about moog's background and how he first got interested in in making musical instruments and, and electronic music i thought this was a really fascinating part of the book because it paints this um this like really indelible uh like early mid early 20th century world Bobo definitely came of age in a time in the uh, late 30s when he was just a little boy and into the 40s and the 50s, a time, very much a time of analog electronics, of course. And, and uh, he and his father did ham radio and he was uh, 
you know, sort of a, a ham radio, radio amateur, as they called it, and that sort of thing. And uh, most of his early background electronics was his dad, who was actually an engineer for Con Ed, uh, electrical engineer working on a much larger scale uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the whole uh, uh, intricate sort of infrastructure of, of uh, electronics in, in all of New York City. Uh, but Bob and his dad hung out in their basement and they did electronics projects. And that's kind of how Bob got started with all of that. But the key to Bob and music really was the theremin. And it was just a hobbyist project he pulled out of a magazine uh, when he was uh, quite young. And uh, he found this thing and uh, he and his dad built it and uh, he was fascinated by it because uh, for anyone who isn't familiar with the theremin, it is certainly the strangest electronic musical instrument or the strangest instrument ever invented because you don't actually make physical contact with the instrument when you're playing it. It's these two antennas and you move your hands in the electromagnetic field of these antennas and the natural electrical capacitance in your body actually affects the uh, circuits inside this instrument. And one hand, the left hand controls the volume, how loud and soft each note is going to be or each phrase and the right hand plays notes it's monophonic so it's like singing in the shower there is no harmony there's nothing there but it sounds kind of like a wordless soprano or some people have compared it you know it's sort of a howl to uh maybe a violin sound or something like that uh but it's certainly invented in the 1920s by leon theremin it's just this fascinating tool early tool of electronic music and the young bob moog was just absolutely fascinated by it at the age of 14 and he just that was the thing that really was a kind of thread that ran through his whole life even into his uh, later years, right before he died, he was still manufacturing theremins alongside of everything else. So the theremin was his way in, and that's kind of how it all got started. In the 1950s, uh, he and his dad created a little business out of their basement in Flushing, Queens. <laughs> Bob went to the high school of Bronx High School of Science. Uh, and uh, was always very interested in engineering, but he also had a musical background. Uh, he played the piano as a child. He didn't want to, but his mother insisted. She actually wanted him to be a great classical pianist. That was her dream for him. But she beat him over the knuckles with a wooden spoon when he played a wrong note. And it was really just this sort of tug of war with his mom. He really didn't like it. So he had some keyboard technique and that helped him later on with his synthesizer. But uh, he really was much happier in the basement with his dad. So these two worlds kind of came together. He did like music, even though he hated playing piano, and he loved electronics and he loved the theremin. And so they sold these kits uh, and fully built instruments if people wanted them uh, as like a series of very sophisticated one-offs from their little basement in Flushing, Queens. And then when Bob went off to college, uh, he sort of took the business with him. I mean, business, it was, uh, uh, you know, not really uh, much of a business. It was, uh, you know, barely an LLC. And uh, then that's what led eventually to the synthesizer. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> it's such a fascinating, uh, like, approach to electronics that really I feel like, like, I think the ham radio thing is really uh, an important, I mean, it's a really important cultural sphere in that moment 
um, by, 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 by anyone's um, imagination. But yeah, this sense that like, it's possible to start a business <laughs> that's making custom electronics <laughs> yeah. um, kind of made by tinkering in your basement from like built with equipment that was like maybe like borrowed <laughs> from Con Ed. <laughs> well, yes, I mentioned that in my book. Borrowed would be in quotes. Yeah, his, his dad made off with uh, some tools and that. So he had a really fully equipped basement electronics uh, workshop. So that's what Bob grew up uh, being surrounded by. So it was really fascinating. He was a very nerdy kid. He didn't have much of a social life uh, when he was growing up. And he really uh, wanted to always go down these rabbit holes. And that was really the story of his life in so many ways. He was much more interested in invention and in the solution to problems than he was in the eventual result uh, being the bottom line. In other words, how much money am I going to make from this enterprise? That was never really that important to him. He was just kind of wanted to disseminate what he did because he thought it was really cool. But uh, as far as a business goes, um, I mentioned in the book that uh, their first sales, when they added everything up afterwards, they realized they actually paid for the privilege of selling these early theremins because they they came out, you know, they at a loss in the end. So that's that's how he got started. And that also is partly the story of his life, you know, that he was always sort of coming out of the loss, no matter how sophisticated equipment was that he was selling. I mean, I, I have to say that, like, as someone who uh, <laughs> played in many uh, unsuccessful uh punk bands like i i deeply understand the sense of spending a lot of time and effort to do something <laughs> that ends up at a monetary loss so i'm not pointing fingers um so so he he grows up jewish in um queens and um has you know goes to a a, a super elite right public school right bronx science one of the best schools in the country um, and is this like, but, uh, you know, a magnet New York public school right. is kind of in like the heyday of the, the CUNY right. system and then goes to CUNY for college. Right. Uh, uh, well, yes, uh, he was in a dual program, uh, Columbia University and Queens College. And throughout this whole time, he's getting increasingly interested in, um, I guess, like more and more complex visions of how to how to think electronically about about music right yes his uh theremins were his major project though for for many many years essentially until uh 1964 uh he uh graduated from columbia in 1957 and then went to cornell to pursue a phd uh, in engineering physics and it was really during that time uh that during the late part of that time that he actually uh sort of uh fell <laughs> slipped backwards on a banana peel as he always <laughs> described it into sort of the electronic musical instrument business uh before then it was really all theremins but the theremins became increasingly sophisticated uh, so uh, and that's a whole other thing I can get into about transistors but that of course uh, has very much to do with uh, sort of the um, an economic and technological climate of the 50s but that sort of goes under that heading but it definitely uh, it became more sophisticated so by the time he was presented with the opportunity I say presented with because he didn't necessarily initiate this to uh, 
do a prototype of what would be his synthesizer. He already had a lot of knowledge through his theremin work uh, of what waveforms sounded like and the engineering to be able to pull those off. And so the synthesizer really becomes a kind of um, sort of development of the theremin technology on a really, really high level <laughs> with, with many more bells and whistles and, and much more functionality built into so, it. So yeah, so let's talk about um, those transistors for a second, because that's one of these kind of um, underlying dynamics that kind of shapes the evolution of the story as a whole. Like uh, at one level, this is the story of the um, kind of the transistor revolution and the microprocessor revolution and, and the, uh, the ability to have increasingly complex information dynamics embedded in in all kinds of stuff. You know, we're at the Internet of Things now, supposedly. But um, this is the very early days of that. So, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's get into that. Can you, can you explain a little bit about um, how he starts integrating transistors into the theremins and, and just what what new kinds of possibilities these um, this kind of rollout of post-war technologies um, opens up for musical instruments? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, uh, there are a couple factors involved. Uh, one of them is, of course, you know, vacuum tubes were the uh, you know bread and butter of electronics until the advent of transistors. And so, in the late 1940s at Bell Labs, with the invention of the transistor, it was just an incredible revolution. It was just uh, amazing. And uh, what what that did was it it showed. Bob what was possible, but it took a while to do that. So uh, what happens is uh, essentially, um, uh, you know, Fortune magazine uh, declared 1953 the year of the transistor. And they said, uh, you know, it was a revolution. Uh, Time magazine, you know, said it could be more important than the atomic, than atomic energy and the atomic bomb. And it really proved to be so. And so what happened was, of course, the Japanese uh, were the ones who actually first embraced the transistor more than uh, than Americans did. Uh, Bob always had a, a beef, and uh, I understand, and I'm sure many people said this, but um, in the 50s, the Cold War uh, was such a focus for uh, America that uh, we put our, uh, you know, we, we put most of our emphasis on uh, militarization and sort of left consumer electronics to kind of, uh, uh, you know, follow along in their own way. Whereas the Japanese who were actually uh, prevented um, in, uh, you know, by the U.S. in, in post-war negotiations from uh, actually developing any uh, military technology. They, they were not allowed to. They very quietly thought, hmm, well, what could we do? Well, maybe we could do some consumer electronics. And they very eagerly uh, embraced the whole idea of uh, the transistor when it came out, even though it was an American invention. And of course, during the 50s, they were among the first really to develop the transistor radio, which was, of course, you know, transformative. And uh, it's amazing because Bob first encountered transistors in 1956 during a summer job at Sperry Rand. And at that point, um, a box of uh, transistors was probably about this, a small box of transistors would be equal in price at that time to like a, uh, 
uh, a used car or something, they were about $30 a piece. So they were still, you know, prohibitive for, for anyone like Bob, who was, you know, still working out of his uh, dad's basement, that kind of thing. He couldn't really have done much with them. But by um, the late 1950s, uh, everything had changed. By 1957, it was like a $100 million industry. And the Japanese were already beginning to uh, do the first developments of uh, television with transistors, which is pretty amazing. So by 1964, when Bob was planning the first prototype of his synthesizer, transistors had come down to 25 cents a piece. So that was uh, really essentially one of the things that made it possible for him uh, on a very uh, small budget to be able to start to incorporate transistors into that technology. He had used, and there are a couple other things I have to say about this, he had used transistors twice before, once about 1959 in uh, one model of his theremin, the professional model, and he uh, uh, started to work with them, but again, it was a theremin, uh, less, much less sophisticated than the synthesizer. And then, uh, in 1961, he decided to do a really big commercial venture. I mean, when I say big, big for him, it came off of his kitchen table, you know, again, out of his house when he was married and, and he and his wife were assembling these things, but he sold kits and finished, uh, theremins, uh, and sold about a thousand of them. And, uh, at about 50 dollars a pop. And that was the first sign to him that, gee, you know, maybe this little basement enterprise could really be something uh, bigger. But again, it was still theremins. And this was 1961. And but he was looking at transistor radios and seeing the popularity of them. And that's one of the things that drove him to uh, put the actual recipe for how to make that transistorized theremin into a hobbyist magazine, Electronics World. And uh, so a lot of people could make their own, but most people just wanted to buy one. So that's how he made so much money initially. So that whole transistor radio craze uh, was very much driven by that. And then the look of his theremin was also, uh, I think, uh, something that came out of the sort of design aesthetic of the early 60s, where, uh, you know, cars started to lose their fins, uh, the sort of a curved sort of like Gene Shepard said, beached whale look of cars kind of was sort of flattened out and made more boxy and utilitarian uh, in the 60s. And so his theremins, the original ones were these big sort of boxy wooden devices. And eventually uh, they came down to this very, very efficient uh, kind of little, almost like a, a shoe box that somebody stepped on with their foot and flattened it out. It's about the way it would look. And it, so it had that very early 60s utilitarian look. So he was playing very much into that. And if you look at his little brochures that he put out at that time, um, the the very language, the, uh, the hype in there is very much taken from the sort of, you know, madman aesthetic, I think, right. uh, you know, he has a woman in a toga and a sort of a luxe style in on the front of one of his brochures that looks like it's pulled from a, a B. Altman ad. So that was very much 
part of the time. And even the the lingo in his brochures is drawn from the kind of hype that you would see in, let's say, maybe an ad for a Chevrolet in Life magazine or something like that. So he was definitely, even though working on a very, very limited scale out of out of a, an apartment or out of a, a room in a house, and he was not really a company yet uh, in, in the modern sense of the word, he was still modeling uh, from all of those um, uh, those tendencies of the time. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean it's so interesting that that discussion tran- transistors, and not just to to um to go too far afield or to go down a rabbit hole, but you know, in 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 contemporary discourse about technology, especially kind of the the discourse that's centered around Silicon Valley, um, it's very easy to think about um, tech as synonymous with the internet. Tech is synonymous with um. You know, digital digital programming and, and and computers and just thinking about like the much much longer history of that um even in like a very recognizable american context uh that that uh in in what you said 1953 time says that this is the year of the transistor is something that like <laughs> just the way that 2023 was like the year of the large language model and <laughs> Just seeing these trends, um, both in terms of, of 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 their very real effects, but also the kind of hype cycles around them, is is fascinating. Yeah, definitely. So, so that's sort of Bob's transition in some ways from um, or hobbyist magazines and you know do-it-yourself projects and ham radio and all of that into uh, a very different world, but still a pre-digital age. So, so just to catch up and keep keep Bob moving along his path. He marries. He marries his wife Shirley when he's just finished college, right, or about to. Well, uh, yes, he was. He was in Cornell at the time. But when you said college, I didn't know if you meant graduate school. Yes, uh, right, exactly. So he's in. He's getting a PhD at Cornell, which he right. almost immediately realizes is not what he wants to do with his life. And it t- maybe takes him a minute to admit it fully to himself, but he he's kind of got this company going towards. I guess I mean he's got a lot. He's uh, really stretches out that PhD, um, but uh, towards I guess the, the the middle of it when they they start um, when they really start turning out the theremins with these kits and making you know real money for the early sixties. Uh, he's kind of living in this you know small upstate new york town kind of near ithaca and is set up kind of like a mini a mini factory almost which is partially like the labor of his uh family and partially uh local folks who he's hiring to put together these things and so he's had one hit and he's investing <laughs> in what he thinks might be the next the next big thing which is kind of a, a do it yourself amplifier kit when as you say he he slips backwards on a banana peel into history so right. so uh what's the banana peel and how does he hit history that's the way he described it of course you know those are his words <laughs> Well, it's one of these great, uh, uh, you know, coincidences of fate. Uh, he was still selling theremins. He had this notion that he writes to his aunt about 
uh, that he and 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 talks about in a newsletter. He actually put out. I described it in the book as a one man masthead because he did everything. He was writer, editor, publisher. He put out this little uh, R A Moog company. That was the name of their, his company, um, R A Moog Company newsletter. And uh, you know, with all the great goings on at the Moog factory, which is really just you know a couple of people, a few people, <laughs> but you know, it was uh, it was kind of a Potemkin village. You know, nobody. Knew knew his customers certainly didn't and so he was talking about some kind of a notion he had of some kind of electronic device that would allow you to make music other than the theremin <laughs> and he wasn't quite sure and and he, it's funny because he described it as something that he thought maybe if he invented it it could be used in conjunction with a hi-fi system because you know this was the great age of you know hi-fi stereo speakers you know all of that so he was he was kind of playing with that notion that he didn't really have anything more than just a, a concept, but it really wasn't anything firm. So it wasn't a synthesizer at that point. In the meantime, he he put out a little kind of a questionnaire in his newsletter for his customers. Well, check the box here of what you'd like, you know, and, and there were several little things. And the one that got the most checks was this portable amplifier that would be transistorized and battery operated. And you could take it on your yacht, you know, you could take it to the beach like a transistor radio. You could do um, any Anything with it. And he thought it would be rather popular because at that time, you know, electric guitars were starting to be a little more popular. And, and he thought, well, you know, every electric guitar needs a speaker amp, you know, that kind of thing. So why not uh, do this? But he spent so much time on this thing and used up so many resources, family, family resources. It was the beginning of, of, of this the tendency he had and when he finally came out with this thing and put out this this wonderful little uh, flyer with all of this very uh, hip contemporary language uh, that again sounded like he was selling a I don't know maybe a Cadillac in Life magazine or something all the you know the you know the feel of the um, of the speaker and uh, you know the, uh, the the speakers wrapped in a particular kind of uh, uh, I don't know plastic uh, 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 you know coating and all this and the feel of the hand and and then all of the specs on you know the um, uh, signal to noise ratio and all of this and he was so proud of it it was his high end amp and they sold just a few of them a handful and he realized that the whole thing was kind of ill conceived but being Bob Moog not only did he put this thing out but he had a whole separate thing about how you could hot rod it you know and how you could do other things with it and he included a, as he put it like a textbook style manual that all of this stuff it was such an intellectual deep dive uh, and then when he brought it out and you know served it up to his customers there were a few people who said, yeah, maybe I'll take one. <laughs> and that was kind of the end of that enterprise. And, and he had put so much money into it. So it was it was really bad. And the sad irony of this whole thing was uh, this was right around the time the Beatles were uh, making their American debut and the Rolling Stones were, were you know coming into focus. And so every kid had to have an electric guitar, a cheap one, you know, uh, imported uh, usually from, from Japan. And of course, they would need a cheap uh, amp, uh, speaker amp. And so he and uh, his uh, friend and business associate, Walter Sear, 
found themselves making, knocking out these cheap amps that were, you know, and distortion was the whole point. Uh, and it was the very thing he was trying to avoid with his other amp. And they knocked these things out just for a buck here and there. They weren't making too much of a profit, but that's what he was using his little factory for at that point, because he just, he didn't know how he was going to make a living. He didn't know what he was going to do. So what happened was he's still selling theremins and he goes to this uh, conference uh, at this uh, New York State uh, School Music Association conference just to hawk his theremins. Uh, you know, he had kits and he was still selling those. And um, he's at this booth uh, with his friend Walter Sear, who, who built tubas. And they have tubas and theremins and all these <laughs> teachers are coming up. You know, it's quite the combination, you know. And, uh, and there's what this an ensemble. guy who, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, this uh, guy named uh, uh, Herb Deutsch, uh, who was a professor at um, uh, Hofstra University in Long Island, he's just walking around the booths and looking at these things. And uh, um, he he says, oh, you know, it's funny. I built one of these. I, I had ordered one of these kits, these theremins. That's that company, R.A. Moog. And um, he walks up and he sees Bob standing there. And Bob is with such a modest character and so, uh, you know, unpretentious and unassuming that he just thought, oh, this must be some salesman for that big R.A. Moog company. And, you know, he said, may I help you? Yes, I built one of your theremins. And he said, oh, I'm Bob Moog. And he said, oh, great to meet you. And they start talking. And the next thing you know, Herb, who was a composer and uh, um, elect was trying to write electronic music, again, you know, uh, the microphones in the bathtub and the splicing the tape and all these uh, crazy methods that uh, were not very successful. He did some, what we would call like music concrete pieces, but um, he needed, he was, he was just desperate to find a better method. And they started talking and uh, Bob said, hmm, you know, maybe we could get together and, and try something out. So um, about nine months later or so, they did get together in Trumansburg, New York, which is this little town where outside of Ithaca, where Bob and his wife were living. And Bob had talked to Herb and said, what do you want? And Herb said, I guess like any composer of electronic music would, uh, you know, well, I want something that goes ooh, ooh, and I want something that goes click, click, and I want, can you make scratching noises for me? And can you do this? And can you do that? <laughs> and Bob kind of took it all in and thought, hmm, that's a challenge. Maybe I can do that. So he put these circuits together in a way that he had never done with theremins before, but he knew how waveforms worked and all of that. And he just cannibalized this little keyboard from a uh, old electronic organ and put it on that. And he just had these breadboards that were just lying out in the open in the basement of his uh, little, little factory that he had in Trumansburg with his few employees who were still, you know, knocking out these these um, the cheap amplifiers and Herb comes and spends, uh, you know, a couple of weeks and just works with this stuff in the basement. And the beauty of this thing was Bob showed him that, uh, you know, at first Herb just, you know, played notes on the keyboard and it just like turned on and off these sounds. It was like a doorbell, like a series of little doorbells, each one on a kind of a, you know, like a piano keyboard type thing. And Herb said, yeah, so big deal. What happened was that Bob said, no, 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 you don't understand. You see, I have amplifiers and I have oscillators. 
uh, and these are the breadboards, and but you can interconnect them in sort of uh, endless ways. One will react, one will act on another, which will act back on the first one. And there were all sorts of things you could do just with these little breadboards. And Herb started experimenting and uh, started coming up with all these sounds that he had been struggling for years to get with uh, you know, magnetic tape and all of that. And it just all seemed so intuitive, but there were still lots of limits to it. So Herb, uh, you know, said to Bob, well, okay, you know, you press down a, a key on the, on the keyboard and you get a note and you pick up your finger and note stops. So again, it's like a doorbell, but he said, you know, that's not musical because musical instruments, you know, have an attack and they have a certain way the sound is shaped. And when you, you know, release a note on an instrument, it doesn't stop It kind of, you know, there's, there's a, a sort of a, a drift off to it or something. And he said, can you do this for me? And so Bob did that. And little by little, they, they put this thing together and, uh, uh, that was the first prototype of what would be a synthesizer, although it was not called a synthesizer. Bob didn't want to do that uh, because there, that term had been used, uh, well, quite a bit in the past, but especially for uh, RCA had built this at the time $25,000 machine that they called a synthesizer. That's a whole other story, but that was in the 1950s. And there were only two of them that were built and uh, they practically required an engineer to operate them. So they were not user-friendly and they certainly weren't friendly for most composers or musicians. So the revolution that Bob uh, was responsible for that I talked about earlier, you know, had so much to do with user friendliness. Uh, uh, that's what he was doing, the efficiency of what you could do with this system. Um, and that's what Herb sort of discovered. So what happened was that fall of 1964, which was, you know, of course, such a seminal year in uh, an American history too, uh, sort of some people, I guess, would call it like the be real beginning of the 60s, uh, 1964, um, he went to this conference uh, in, in New York, uh, the um, Audio Engineering Society. He was invited to have a little booth there uh, because uh, another big company had given up. CBS had had uh, forfeited their booth at this huge audio convention. And Bob, uh, one of my chapters is entitled "A Eunuch and a Harem," you know, because that's the way he felt. You know, he's sitting with his <laughs> his wife's Indian print bedspread over this old card table, you know, with these little breadboards that he had put into these little cabinets and put labels on with rubber cement, you know, with the different functions. But it was really, you know, kind of just, a, you know, like you go to a hobbyist convention, here's what I threw together in my basement. And on each side of him is Scully and 3M, you know, and all these ginormous corporations. And he's sitting there with his little, you know, uh, prize cherry pie at the, at the state fair, you know, it's that kind of thing. And he really <laughs> felt, you know, outclassed and, and, everything. And so he thought he was just showing it, you know, typical Bob, these are engineers that are going to be coming by and maybe they'll, they'll say, you know, I like that. That's, that's a cute device. Uh, good luck to you. And meanwhile, he had some theremins there because he was always hawking his theremins because he still thought this is how From beginning to <laughs> end, <laughs> right? Well, you know, that's the only way he could make any money at that point. 
so um, it, lo and behold, at that conference, uh, the first person to come by was Alwyn Nikolai, who was a uh, you know really internationally recognized choreographer and uh, uh, who created his own music again, like Herb did, and most people did at that time electronically with all these homemade methods. And uh, and he had actually worked a little bit with some assistance on that RCA uh, uh, contraption. But again, it was very frustrating to him. So he comes by and he looks at this little device that Bob has at the Engineering Society and literally says to Bob, I'll take one of those and one of those and one of those. And uh, Bob thought to himself, wait, wait a second. What do you mean you'll take? You mean you want to buy something here? And that was at that moment that Bob <laughs> realized, wait a second, I'm in business, you know, with this device now, you know, and he knew he had to make more of these and he had to make them on a more sophisticated level. And so the next thing you knew, he made uh, a system uh, for uh, Nikolai and then um, uh, Eric Sade, who was a hugely successful uh, uh, commercial uh, uh, jingle writer who, you know, did the Maxwell House coffee and, uh, you know, all of these major contracts that he had from car companies and everything. He was huge. Uh, 1950s jingles, uh, commercial jingles. He ordered one. He was uh, Bob's second customer and he ordered, you know. At the forefront of the avant-garde, the jingle. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. So it was, that's, that's how it got started. So by early 1965, uh, Bob had these devices and he realized that more people were going to want them. And then uh, his one of his main uh, sources of income started to be uh, universities and colleges that decided that, uh, yes, they had little electronic music labs and you had tape recorders and people were still taking razor blades and splicing tape and running it backwards and running it through, you know, filters and different sorts of things the way they did in radio stations. Sometimes uh, uh, early electronic music composers working at radio stations to make this early electronic music. But uh, the, the labs, the electronic labs, uh, early ones in these universities thought, Hmm, this might be a more efficient way of doing this too. So one by one, he started getting orders from all these universities. So by 1967 now, we're only talking three years later, Bob was finally ready to call this thing a synthesizer. He finally <laughs> decided, okay, I guess we can call it a synthesizer because by then all these different customers had asked for this and for that. They wanted, uh, you know, they wanted filters and they wanted uh, various kinds of, uh, you know, envelope controllers and, and sophisticated uh, add-ons. And that's where we get the idea of modular because we describe uh, Bob's synthesizer as a voltage-controlled modular analog synthesizer, and each module had a function. And it's a kind of an expansion of the original breadboard idea of just the little three little breadboards that were in the basement with Herb Deutsch. But now you have them enclosed in in uh, you know actual modules, which are stacked into cabinets, and each module had a function, and they all kind of work together. I, I should also mention voltage control. Voltage control is really a major part of this. That was part of the genius of what Bob came up with. And it all relates back again to the transistor. And so I described this in the book. This wouldn't have been possible with vacuum tubes, but he found that the electrical properties of the transistor had exponential uh, relationships that were analogous to the exponential relationships right. of pitch 
uh, like an octave is a factor of two or something like that, and also yeah. to uh, to decibels and to uh, volume and amplifiers. And since the first two components, uh, basic components of his original um, prototype uh, were um, oscillators that you know create pitches and uh, tones and amplifiers that control uh, the intensity, the volume, uh, those two working together, it made sense that the transistors worked perfectly in that very kind of synergistic uh, electronic scheme. And that was the genius behind that. So now with voltage control, you could simply turn up the voltage and do all sorts of things that previously would have had to have been done by mechanical hand motions. And so with all these different modules acting on each other back and forth through voltage, uh, it just absolutely uh, expanded all the possibilities of what you could do with this. So that was really the genius of it. And by 1967, he had a big catalog, a 25-page catalog with all sorts of different options. You know, you could order custom systems, you could order individual modules, all these things. So that's really when he was beginning to be in business. And between 1967 and the end of 1969, those were really his uh, halcyon days. Those those were the years that he really uh, had a business that was flourishing and everybody thought, wow, you know, this is the next big thing, I guess, like IBM or, you know, some Bell Labs or something. But then it all kind of crashed after that. But those are due to all sorts of other factors, too. Yeah. No, I mean, it's really interesting thinking about like that, um, the kind of genius of A, accessibility and B, the kind of sense that, um, you know, these are components that should be not interchangeable, but that they're all able to interact with each other. Uh, this might be a little bit of, of, a, of a reach, but it, it's just so funny. He's such an idiosyncratic figure. You know, on, on one side, he's, you know, not, if he was any less of a businessman, <laughs> he might have ended up as like a brilliant adventure for a huge company, right? Like Bell Labs or yes, something. Yes, he always said that um, he could have simply just thrown in the towel in the early days when he wasn't selling very much and he was desperate for money and simply gone to work uh, leveraging his PhD, uh, just working as an engineer at Bell Labs. That would have been, he could have walked right into a job like that. And and if he was, you know, any, any more of a businessman, he might have had a, a different company. But it strikes me as he's this really remarkable kind of betwixt in between. And it does feel like... Uh, it's like he never quite left that world of like ham radio hobbyists at some exactly. point. Exactly. On a massive scale, but he's like a, he's truly a hobbyist, like through and through. It's science, it's art, it's them together, this kind of uh, idiosyncratic package and the sense of not wanting to relinquish control of that too, I think is a, as uh, feels like um kind of a central part of that hobby. It's very DIY. I guess it's it's almost unfair to compare his business to let's say uh, you know Cadillac or or you know General Motors or anything like that because that was an established technology that had mm -hmm. been going for decades and so a Cadillac let's say was only a higher end version of maybe a Ford or something you know that people knew. 
Bob was, uh, you know, willy nilly without even, you know, he fell sliding backwards into it on a banana peel. He founded an entirely new industry. There were no synthesizer manufacturers before Bob. So he was the first one out in the field. Um, he didn't really know how to do this. He had no business training. And as soon as even the big universities started to order these instruments, he could build them, but what he realized in the process of building them is that uh, the number of parts that go into this combined with the cost of labor and overhead and all of this meant that he could barely break even, but he really wasn't making a whole lot of money. And uh, I always love that um, uh, that old statement, uh, never confuse revenue with profit, you know? <laughs> because there was revenue, but there was hardly any profit. And sometimes there was a no profit and it was he was into minus numbers. The problem was that uh, if, if you wanted the top of the line Moog synthesizer in uh, the late 60s, uh, you would spend about six thousand dollars in 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 nineteen sixties dollars. We're talking about, um, and that was a huge amount of money at that time. You could buy a Cadillac for that amount, probably buy a Cadillac and a half for that amount in, in those days. So um, you know, very few uh, individual um, customers, certainly musicians or or you know, musicians who weren't superstars were not uh, able to even touch this. So it was a very rarefied product. It was very expensive to build and people weren't going to spend more than $6,000. I mean, it was a stretch just to do that, but to provide this for them could cost very close to that. So he realized that it was a new industry and there was no precedent. And uh, he was the first one out in the field. And so uh, you, you know, there's nothing to compare it to. And he was not a businessman. And so that was his problem. It wasn't like making t-shirts, you know, these, these things involved, you know, hundreds and hundreds right. of parts. And it was just, so, it, so in that sense, it wasn't really his fault. Anyone in his position uh, would have been uh, looking at uh, a, a low uh, profit for a, a lot of, uh, of, you know, very extensive manufacturing. So that was the problem with the very industry itself. And he wasn't even sure it was a viable industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so that was one of the main problems. And again, he had no business training. And Bob, throughout his life, never really had a business plan, uh, you know, which is which <laughs> sounds ridiculous in modern day terms, but it wasn't really something that interested him. And when we get to the mini Moog, uh, which was the first sort of viable uh, version uh, of his synthesizer that individual musicians could actually carry around to gigs and take into recording studios and could manage uh, in terms of programming it because, you know, the big instruments, you had patch chords, which was just like, a, you know, telephone operator switchboard with all these chords dripping down and you could barely even recreate a sound. One sound would involve all of these different patches going into, you know, uh, into this patch bay. And then uh, could you recreate that sound? You'd have to take a Polaroid shot of where all these things came from if you wanted to recreate it the next day, if you pulled out the chords and so difficult. So the mini mode, uh, which was um, established in uh, finally in late 1970, was the first ever um, commercial. Bought it tooth and nail, kind of, right? Like, uh, 
Well, uh, yes, I mean, it was, it was the, the first uh, version of a synthesizer that was self-contained in a single unit that you could literally put under your arm and carry around, and it was practical for musicians, and it was less complicated to program. I mean, there were fewer possibilities, which Bob did not like in terms of you couldn't have the almost infinite number of combination of sounds that you could on the original uh, big modular one, but it, it did have a lot of capabilities capabilities. And Bob himself was not interested in doing that. And the only reason that there was a mini Moog, really, uh, the original prototype was developed by one of his engineers on his lunch hour, you know, just kind of knocking it together from spare parts just to say, what, what if we made this little thing, you know, that's, uh, you know, a couple, couple feet wide and, you know, it's, it's practical. What if we did this? And he put it together and showed it to Bob and Bob said, yeah, that's nice. You know, he wasn't really excited. And it was only because the company was on the verge of going under for the first time, <laughs> uh, you know, sinking because the market for these um, uh, big modulars had been basically sort of uh, saturated and they weren't selling as many. It was very difficult and they were going under and the employees were really worried, well, I'm going to lose my job if we don't do something. And they were the ones that kind of got together in a huddle and said, we've got to convince Bob to make this mini mode because that could be a consumer item. Whereas the big uh, instruments were, Right. Uh, not consumer items, but Bob was very resistant. He said, uh, that's when he famously said, you know, we make Cadillacs, you know, uh, we make, uh, you know, high end instruments. We don't make mass market uh, products, but um, he had to eventually face reality. And that's when they started to work on the mini mode. But throughout his life, he was never somebody who planned for, uh, you know, a certain profit margin or anything like that. It was and, always, and uh, you know, just sort of, uh, you know, flying by the seat of his pants. And it's a tricky position to be in. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, I want to get to kind of kind of wrap this up by talking about kind of the cultural impacts of, of this music, especially this because he's kind of halcyon days. But I mean, it is a tricky, yeah, it's a tricky position to be in because I, I do think that um, his line about, uh, and we went back and forth about this by email a little bit, but I do think that his line about Cadillacs is really interesting because actually what he, <laughs> Cadillacs is the thing that he really <laughs> couldn't ever be. Like if maybe in a weird way, right? Like, and, and I'm just, it's a little bit tricky because, um, uh, you know, selling musical instruments is a little bit than selling like really high-end audio gear but like maybe almost you could be like maserati you know what i mean like even higher price point even more profit like a super you know creating a brand all of that stuff that you'd have to do um you know, I'm thinking about uh, uh, Alembic Sound, which is this kind of uh, audio tech company that kind of spins out of the Grateful Dead orbit at um, similarly like late 60s um, that makes, a, you know, they're still around and I think makes a fair bit of profit by installing extremely high-end speaker systems, um, designing and installing sound systems for places where... That six that they're charging way more than six thousand dollars, and and in the new rock economy, you know, Bill Graham can afford to pay it, right? Like uh, this, you know, Electric Ladyland can afford to pay it, and so you know, there's this funny thing where, but again, I keep coming back to this hobbyist idea. It's like, no, he wanted them to be accessible and be playable by not by institutions but by people, 
at the same end, you know, thinking about the problem with instruments, it's even even in the 60s and, and clearly uh, even more so today, it's like, what does Fender make its profits on? It's not the really high-end guitars. Those are important because they kind of like keep its prestige up, but it's it's the Squires, like $200 Squires. Right. Oh, sure. Everyone buys and throws in a closet. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, mass market was never his idea of a good time. And um, what it finally came down to, um, it finally came down to the point where, you know, he was bought out uh, because he was sinking and he was uh, bought out by a venture capitalist. And one thing led to another, then the venture capitalists uh, sold it to Norlin, this, you know, giant corporation. And uh, it went on and on. And he eventually just became an employee in his own company. They, they kept his name, but uh, they really owned everything. And he was just an employee there and he was kind of their, uh, you know, the poster boy for the company. Uh, and and he was valuable to them in that way, but they really didn't care about him as an engineer. He kind of was literally sidelined uh, because they wanted to put out the products they wanted to put out. And the saddest part, I think one of the saddest episodes was during the 70s when all of this was going on, um, he uh, was forced because uh, more and more the term synthesizer was becoming associated with just like a cheap uh, little keyboard that you could pick up in, you know, Sam Ash or something in any, any music store and take home under your arm and add it to your gear and, and have some effects. It was no longer the big deal, uh, the sophisticated uh, uh, piece of uh, technology that Bob originally had designed. So um, there were too many competitors at that point uh, because since he, he opened the way for all these other people and, and then they came along. And, and as I said in the book, you know, it's easy to just uh, take what somebody else has done and their technology and all of their Especially years. when he had very few patents. Well, yeah. Which I wasn't quite clear about why. He only had one patent, and that was uh, on his ladder filter his whole life. Uh, I mean, he was on patents with other people, but um, those weren't really the same thing. The only thing that he patented himself was his ladder filter, which was also stolen by the ARP company. I mean, surreptitiously, they used it in their instruments until for years later it was finally discovered um, Arp, the Earth. villain of this book <laughs> uh, well well yes yes arp was a major competitor and it was arp i mentioned that it was easy for um uh you know alan uh, perlman to come along and just move the starting uh you know starting gate over and say okay all this technology has problems we're going to improve on it well it had problems because uh, yeah, Bob had developed it from the ground up and he was still working on it. So uh, it's easier just to take existing technology and improve on it than it is to be the person who started originally and is still trying to build it up. So um, his competitors had come out with these little organ attachment things you could use with an, uh, with an electric organ, put it on the side and play it with one hand. You know, they called it a one hand band, you know. And so the saddest thing was Bob was eventually told that he had to do something, a little four hundred dollar keyboard uh, that they could sell in any music store and so he put together this thing called the satellite which uh, competed with the arp instrument and uh it was just essentially uh presets really just little preset sounds and you know those things were called synthesizers 
but they weren't really synthesizing sound. It, it just sort of uh, in the same way that, uh, you know, a, um, a professional chef uh, would uh, not want to use, uh, you know, some product off the shelf where you just add water and stir it up and you have a cake, right. you know, <laughs> instant cake. Uh, that's essentially what these things were, you know, um, and and people called them synthesizers because by that point, by the mid seventies, uh, synthesizers were so uh, much a part of the sort of musical uh, fabric that. Uh, anything that made a sound that wasn't a traditional instrument and was electronic and you could play it with a little keyboard and add it, uh, add effects, uh, you know, to a rock band that was a synthesizer. So uh, Bob was forced to actually produce one of those, but he, he hated that, you know, it's just, it was not what he wanted to do. So that's the kind of, I think, uh, uh, an amazing point, right? That by 75, they're 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 four hundred dollars synthesizers, and they're just like omnipresent through the pop landscape. In '65, synthesizers are pretty much the provenance of experimental composers in like a couple of different distinct traditions that I think we're not gonna we're not gonna dig too deep into the difference between uptown, downtown, and west coast experimental synthesizer composers at this moment but read the book folks it's fascinating and then like listen to silver apples of the moon so i guess one of the amazing things is for me is how quickly this moved from experimental experimental spaces uh to kind of the center the, you know the white hot heart of pop music and it, it does seem that when compared to let's say um music concrete which continued to rely on um you know which is uh, uh making music through modified recorded kind of tape samples and 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 tape pieces of tape and is at some level sampling right something that will end up being extremely important in music another two decades later uh doesn't really get picked up and but synthesizers do and it does seem that at least part of that is due to this really fateful decision early on which is to to make it function in many ways uh at least at, at an interface level as a kind of uh, around a traditional keyboard um which allows then its kind of integration into kind of more traditional musical formats uh, uh, absolutely that was the big uh conundrum when uh bob and herb originally had those little breadboards put it together and uh bob just threw a keyboard on the initial one that he threw together because it's supposed to be for a musician he figured well you have to put some kind of keyboard on it and the electric organ was kind of the model at that time you know um you also, you also should say you mentioned sampling of course the mellotron had been around and oh of course mellotron you know uh and that, of course, leads into another area of, of the whole union, the idea of replacing uh, instrumentalists with electronic devices. But anyway, getting back to um, the question of keyboard or no keyboard, 
Uh, it's true, uh, you know, um, as you said, you know, people making Lucy Concrete and that kind of thing were not using keyboards at all. And the kinds of sounds that they were working with sort of um, more like, uh, you know, sound collages, collages of sound uh, and sounds rather than musical pitches and chords and, you know, uh, melodies and that sort of thing. But a, a, a succession of sounds, intriguing sounds like a sound soundscape those types of things didn't really require a keyboard. And what, what Herb was doing uh, uh, with his electronic music didn't really require that either. Um, and so, as I said in the book, you know, if you want to make the sound of rainfall or broken glass, you can do that by any interface. You can, uh, you know, push a button, you could uh, uh, hook up a theremin so that you wave your hand in front of the antenna and it triggers the sound of broken glass, you know, or something that, that, that is synthesized sound that's sounds like broken glass on not a sample uh, on a synthesizer or you could do you know you foot pedal you could do almost anything you don't need a traditional keyboard and so they they really you know did a lot of hand wringing over that because they thought well okay you know a keyboard black and white keyboard is associated with a whole history of Western music, and it implies, uh, you know, clavichords, harpsichords, uh, uh, early pianos, pianos, organs, all sorts of harmony and melody instruments, and that's what we associate with it. And sure enough, when Herb went down to the basement that first day and saw that um, setup, and he saw a keyboard, the first thing he played was Bach. You know, that was what occurred to him because, of course, it's a keyboard; it's it's crying out, you know play something familiar on yeah i i think about that uh the luciano barrio line that uh well like every instrument has its history and like that that history con constructs what it's uh what's played on it so you know that makes total sense and it's fascinating because it it does um to me it feels very much like a path not not taken that that uh that this introduction to the keyboard does allow it not just like initially buck but it allows it to be um uh, the, the kind of radical sonic possibilities to be to be um, reined in to a certain extent. Well, that's what they were worried about. And the funniest thing of all was that uh, they called up Vladimir Yusachevsky, who was, uh, you know, the uh, avant-garde electronic composer uh, in residence at, at uh, Columbia and uh, asked his opinion. And he said, don't put a keyboard on it because if you put a keyboard on it, now mind you, this is 1964. He said, if you put a keyboard on it, pop musicians are going to get a hold of it and they will make junk out of it. That was exactly what he said. He was very, he was smart guy. <laughs> yes, he certainly was. And they thought about it for a while and uh, Herb, uh, I think kind of, uh, um, you know, convince Bob that, well, you know, it's going to appeal to musicians because it, it's really true. Uh, without a keyboard, it just really looked like any other kind of like early stage computer or something. You know, it, it was a series of panels with lights and, and uh, uh, you know, patch bay and, and, and it was an electronic uh, device. And as a matter of fact, when they took the keyboard away from it and brought it up to um, the University of Toronto, 
Mexico uh, just shortly after they had uh, sort of uh, worked on it in 1964. They wanted to show it off because they have an incredible uh, electronic music lab up there at the University of Toronto, and they were curious to see what those guys up there would say about it. Uh, but they were told, just don't bother to bring the keyboard, just bring the actual device. And they headed in, in, in Bob's VW Bug, and they were about to cross the border into Canada. And the agents uh, uh, took them inside because they thought it was some kind of, they didn't know what it was, but they thought maybe it was a bomb or some kind of explosive device. And it took uh, just this crazy fluke uh, for them to get across the border because one of the border guards was uh, French. And he said, wait a second, electronic music, what is that, like musique concrète? And Herb said, yeah, exactly. And the guy said, okay, well, let them through, <laughs> you know, but without the keyboard, it could have been a- yeah, Someone hip, someone hip to Schaefer, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So the keyboard was the whole key to saying this is a musical instrument. It's not a uh, electronic piece of equipment. It's not just audio equipment or something. So that was kind of the key. And I think they felt more people would be interested in it if they saw a keyboard on it. So that was essentially why they, they did that. But then, of course, the rest is kind of history you know, because then synthesizers were, except for the early uh, Buchla, uh, Buchla refused, you know, Don Buchla, his uh, instrument, which came, which he came up with about a year after Bob did. So he was a follower of Bob, really. He was not, um, you know, he was not simultaneous with Bob at all. Bob was the first one. But when Buchla uh, came, came up with his own version of the system, uh, he refused to put a keyboard on it. He had these touch plates that you could use, but they were not set up in a kind of chromatic diatonic system like, uh, you know, West music uh, purposely because he felt the touch plates were just interface triggers that the, the the digits of your fingers could touch and they would set off different kinds of sounds. So um, that was an, an example of one that did not have a keyboard, but the Buchla never became as popular as the uh, Moog did. <laughs> so, you know, the keyboard was a very important consideration. And, and to kind of epitomize that ability of the keyboarded instrument to, to, to kind of be integrated and, and the way that people are understanding it. I mean, it is fascinating to think about, um, you know, in, in the 60s context, the continued allure of um, like certain visions of high culture too, right? Like it's coming through these university, uh, university laboratories, kind of music labs. Um, but then the breakout is in, in some ways like, commercial and cultural legitimating album for the synthesizer is like very much um a blast from the classical past which is switched on Bach um Wendy Carlos is kind of era defining right right oh exactly album. I mean switched on Bach really was what put the Moog synthesizer on the map for sure with the larger public uh, because yes it had been uh, uh you know, used here and there before then by uh, several rock musicians, but uh, they used it more as a kind of a decoration, a sonic decoration, just as a kind of curiosity, the way you might use a percussion instrument to kind of, uh, you know, decorate the sound of a of finished tracks so that you feel need a little more sparkle on them or something. But um, so, you know, there's this moment, like you said, this is the kind of from that launching pad, you kind of have the Halcyon days, which is like 68, 69, 70, it, the company's in a little bit of trouble. Um, and it never, you know, there's increasing levels of competition from other, other synthesizer makers. And then kind of by towards the middle end of the 70s, you get real, real competition from um, Japanese, now, now legendary Japanese companies like Yamaha. Um, 
which kind of is is game over for uh the the analog synth oh yeah i mean as early as 1973 uh you know you you had um the early roland uh instruments which uh was uh you know ikaturo kakahashi was uh the founder of roland and he came and visited Bob's factory, uh, which at that time had moved to uh, outskirts of Buffalo, New York, and Williamsville. And uh, he was uh, really kind of a, a sort of a techno spy, you know, uh, you know, who was there to just look around. And uh, Bob might not have, you know, been so open about everything, but the man who had bought Bob out, Bill Waitena was uh, at that point wanting to unload the company because it still wasn't doing well. He was a, a, a venture capitalist and he, he bought the company. He was hoping to build it into some something huge and then sell it at a profit. But when it appeared that wasn't going to be happening, he wanted to unload it as quickly as possible. And uh, so, of course, the Japanese market was just irresistible. It's like, oh, well, the Japanese are doing really well with consumer electronics and guitars and all sorts of things. Maybe, maybe they'll uh, be interested. So he invited Kakahashi to come, uh, but Kakahashi wasn't really in the end. And apparently, was not interested in uh, buying out Moog or taking over the brand. He was just interested in uh, taking his clipboard around the factory and making notes about the technology, uh, which he understood completely. I mean, you know, with his engineering background and everything, so he had no problem sort of saying, "Oh, that's how that works," and "That's how that works." And the next thing you know, uh, you know. By the following year, you had the first Japanese synths, uh, you know, small, uh, portable, uh, very affordable, cheaper than the Mini Moog. And so by 1973, that was really the beginning of the end. And uh, one of those models, not the very first one, the second one, I believe, was uh, a one, one of the instruments that uh, used Bob's patented filter. And so without his knowing it, of course, and there was, I mean, it, it wasn't there... It, it wasn't done legitimately. It was later revealed that, oh, yes, that's the ladder filter. So, you know, Bob couldn't even profit from his one patent that he had, you know. So that was that was really unfortunate. And then 1983, 10 years later, was a very seminal moment uh, in synthesizer technology because that was the revelation of uh, the, the release for the first time of the Yamaha DX7 which just changed the whole game. I, I described it in my book as being like a jet aircraft among propeller planes. You know, it was just on a whole different level. And uh, so it blew everything else out of the water. It was cheaper and it was uh, very user-friendly. Everything was digital. Uh, you know, you had an LED screen and uh, it was programmable, but you could also do simpler things with it. And it had uh, a host of sounds and it also had user programmable sounds. And it just, you know, it was a result of uh, years of research. But as somebody pointed out, and I mentioned this in the book, uh, the difference between Moog Music, even at that point, and the Japanese companies is the Japanese companies had so much capital to work with that they could afford to have failures several years in a row and they could keep going until they finally built a, um, a model that was ready for, uh, you know, prime time. Whereas with Moog Music, even at that time under, um, even under Norlin, which this venture capitalist had sold <laughs> Moog Music to, even under that company, 
uh, they just didn't have the capital to be competing with the Japanese. And so um, once the DX7 came out in 1983, that was really the end of the game. And that's pretty much the end of uh, that uh, iteration of Moog music as we know it. You know, I mean, there were later Moog musics and there's one that exists today, but, uh, you know, that was kind of a very, very low point when they realized that digital technology was going to just take over and it had. And musicians really loved the sound, uh, you know, that kind of clean uh, digital sound. Bob hated that. And, you know, there's been this whole analog revival since the late 90s, you know, and Bob's instruments became vintage synths, which is pretty wild, you know. So within, you know, a short period of time, you know, like about uh, 30 years, Bob went from having the first prototype, um, you know, user-friendly synthesizer in history uh, to something that was like an old vintage synth, you know, <laughs> so. I know, yeah, that's why I was going to kind of um, maybe wrap things up on this amazing point of, of, I mean, the rate of technological change and the ways in which perspective, um, perspective really can alter anything, right? This, this, mu this, uh, this instrument that was understood as the, you know, if you think about the Clockwork Orange soundtrack, as kind of a, a, right. a, 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 as an example of, um, like it, the synthesizers being used as kind of like the, as a metaphor for like futurity, basically. Right. Um, that yeah, in the present day, people who are doing you know this there's a res real resurgence in music built around analog synthesizers. That's uh, where they're lauded for their um for their like organic warmth. Oh, very much, very much. And also, you know, Bob always talked just about the interface, too. He said he liked to twist knobs, you know, and uh, just the whole idea of uh, something that's digital, where it's all, you know, user selectable uh, menus and things like that. You know, it's it's uh, it's not the same as the old fashioned analog knobs that you actually get to twist. And so just just the actual interface and for people who are. Uh, really, you know, diehard, uh, uh, you know, fans of the original technology, uh, you know, there is still a, a segment of, of the sort of um, synth population who really love the old uh, original modulars where they can actually, uh, you know, put uh, patch chords into patch bays and, uh, you know, sort of create sounds ju just by what happens if I plug this into that and then I plug that into that one and what do I get and if I twist these knobs and do that what do I get you know it's, it's much more of an exploration when you have uh, uh, you know user uh, uh, menus and that kind of thing digital menus it's just not quite the same and and the whole experience of soft sense uh, not really the same too I mean yes you can control a knob with your mouse uh, but it's not quite the same feel as actually having your fingertips touch a knob that you can twist left or right, you know? So, you know, uh, and unfortunately, I think, you know, there's probably a whole generation today that really, um, you know, looks at synths as soft synths and says, oh, sure, you know, because, I mean, I have Logic, for instance, I've worked with Logic, and, you know, as you probably know, you know, Logic, you can use, uh, you know, all sorts of synths that you can purchase from different companies, all sorts of, uh, you know, virtual synths in addition to the ones that come with Logic, and, and that's all fine, but, you know, there's nothing quite like the actual physical object, so I think that's a large part of it, and then again, that kind of 
dirtier, uh, you know, more raw analog sound as opposed to the clean sort of sanitized sound of, of digital. You know, and of course, now with digital, you can imitate the, <laughs> the more raw sound and do anything with digital sound. But, you know, there's something really authentic about the original. And I think that's what people love, you know. Uh, so that that's definitely, a, you know, something that's important. Well, I was going to say one one thing that we didn't talk about, which... Uh, uh, I think was a point that I, I know uh, you've been interested in is the whole issue with the union, because that brought up a whole other um, uh, sort of uh, cultural phenomenon with the synthesizer, because the question became uh, very early on, um, okay, do we want this device for new sounds, for sounds that are you know impossible to create in any other way it sounds that nobody has ever heard before or do we just want it to be a synthetic recreation of instruments so that one synth player can play what 10 different people could do and of course you know with broadway pits and all sorts of stuff we've seen the legacy of that unfortunately but that very early on became I think a central question, even with ad agencies who bought synthesizers, because in addition to uh, Bob's early um, academic customers, you also had a lot of ad agencies that thought, oh, well, you know, now we don't need to hire a composer, you know, to then uh, subcontract a whole ensemble of musicians for this commercial. We can just have uh, the composer sit at this keyboard and create the sound of a flute and a trumpet and drums and all sorts of stuff. And we'll, we'll save money if we just buy the synthesizer and have all of our jingle composers use it. You know, it's, it's simpler that way. So those were some of his early customers. And so there was this very strong perception with the synthesizer that it's not just a space age creator of uh, unusual sounds. It's actually a synthetic uh, recreator of, of um, instruments, very much like the whole question of sampling, of course, that we have too, the whole idea that, well, if you can sample instruments and play them back from a keyboard, why should we hire uh, the original musicians? But this, it all started really in many ways with Bob's instrument. And uh, there was a, a story I, I tell in my book about very early on when uh, Dave Vancouvering, one of his uh, primary salesmen, was still hawking synths and, and was trying to develop an interest in them. Um, he went to a, uh, he had this whole deal with, um, uh, with Taco Bell <laughs> and Glenn Bell, the founder of Taco Bell, where he would, um, you know, uh, they would give out coupons to school kids for a free taco. Uh, but then, uh, you know, you would also, it was also um, tied in with school shows where, um, Vancouvering would demonstrate the Moog synthesizer to kids. And then he'd also occasionally bring the synth into a Taco Bell and entertain in the evening so that people would come up and say, hey, where can I get one of those? And he tells this very funny story that I, I relate in the book about how he's off in the corner by the garbage can in, in, uh, in one of these Taco Bells and all these high school kids are coming up and they're all ogling this thing. But they all say to him, gee, where can we get one of those? We don't have a trumpet player in our school band. We, could we? Could that play a trumpet sound? Hey, uh, we don't have a vi any violins. Could that play a violin sound? You know? And he realized, that, of course, that's what they wanted it for. They just wanted it to replace musicians. And it's real. It happened. I mean, it's this complicated oh, yeah. thing. It, 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 it brought, you know, fundamental 
fundamentally new sounds and new approaches to music, but it was also uh, absolutely eliminated. Job yeah, yeah, me. yeah. So that 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 was another uh, sort of societal, uh, uh, um, I guess you'd say, like, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of um, uh, like collateral damage, you know. Of synthesizer yeah. that the, and the union was all up in arms as i guess they were uh, right to be um and i mentioned in the book that there was one uh union uh, somewhere maybe in california i think that said okay uh here's our new rule uh you can hire a synthesizer player for your for your gig or for your ad but you're going to have to pay that person the equivalent of all the musicians that they're replacing so the idea is, well, then why don't we just get the original musicians if we have to pay one person that, that collective fee, you know? So it was really kind of a clever workaround at the time. I don't know how well it worked, but it was a way of kind of getting around that. But that was certainly another uh, major uh, uh, consideration of what, you know, how it is sort of uh, moved into the culture. Well, if you want to hear more about <laughs> Bob Move and the really fascinating life that he led. I, I really, I can't suggest enough. Switched on Bob Moog and the Synthesizer Revolution. Um, thank you so much, Albert, for, for taking the time to talk with us today. Um, we really appreciate it. Oh, it's, 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 been a, it's been a great, great pleasure. Thank you so much.